there are plenty of things um, we can be praying for, obviously. Um, uh, we mentioned this morning some of the just stuff going on. Uh, coronavirus is kicking back up. Who knows how that's going to turn out as we uh, make it through the summer and venture back into fall. Uh, so people are scared. People are hurting because of that. Every four years, America has this tendency to want to eat itself alive, and this is year four for us. Uh, until November 9th, we're going to be entering some really tough times. I'm not a political pastor. That's not my place. That's not my, uh, not my calling, but realistically, uh, the world's going to be eating itself apart. Uh, we hate each other right now. Uh, half the country hates the other half, and, that's, uh, and vice versa. Uh, not the church. Uh, so again, we need to be praying that we be different, we be this uh, message of peace, this message of hope in this time. A few specific things. Uh, she reached out to us this week, but Veronica, she's not here today. Um, her brother has uh, been uh, COVID-19 positive. Um, she was nervous, uh, really nervous. Thank you for the prayers. Uh, he has a mild case is what the doctor says. I hear a lot of mild cases, so I mean, obviously that's a wonderful thing. Um, uh, I've heard that there's some spread in uh, some of the churches around us. Uh, there's one in particular right around the corner that was our plant church, Harvest. I know they had a couple prominent members on a trip this weekend, uh, last weekend, uh, that were exposed to it, and that's uh, obviously not something that uh, we want. Uh, we want our churches to be places of peace and places of rest, um, but also places of hope uh, in the midst of whatever fear, whatever scare might happen, that we are a place of hope. Um, so continue praying for Veronica as well as as the church is moving forward, moving forward, really just taking it one day at a time. Uh, the amount of faces that I have been longing to see that we just can't right now, and, and that's tough. Um, we need to be in prayer for one another, prayer for unity, prayer for strength, prayer that the Holy Spirit leads the church through this time, that we are on the mission that God has given us to proclaim his name and proclaim his gospel to a world that does not want to hear it. Um, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today. We're picking up where we left off on our journey through Ephesians. But first and foremost, um, I want us to open up in prayer. God, we thank you for who you are. You're holy. You're righteous, you're perfect, you're just. You deserve our fear and reverence, but at the same time you've given us a nearness that we can't have with anyone else. And we worship you. As your children, may we worship in purity and truth today. astounded by how wonderful you are, how holy you are. In righteous fear and humility, aware of how far we fall short, and then overjoyed by how much you have lifted us up to be in union with you. Christ, we thank you as our Lord and Savior for your obedience and your humility in the light of the Father's plan. That for a time period, the period though you are God, you chose to become obedient and submissive. Because it was through that that we have redemption. We celebrate you as our Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your sealing presence, that you're with us, that you have identified us as the future inheritance that we have, identified us as children of God. 
And we ask your leadership this morning. You're with us. You never leave. But we ask that you pour forth an abundance, giving us hearts of worship, hearts of discernment, hearts of conviction, and hearts of courage. That through you, we have the wisdom to discern what your word is saying, God, not what we read into it, but what it says. That with conviction, you hit us where we fall short. And with courage, we are strengthened by you to walk out of here looking more like Christ. Spirit, lead me as I preach my open your word and speak what it says with purity and truth and shut my mouth if I get started on something that's not in this text. That's not my place. And I know that. May this not be about us, but be about you. Because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Um, I'm actually going to pick us up, not in all the way back like we've been doing in Ephesians chapter 1, but I am going to pick up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death to the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near, for through him we would have access by one spirit to the Father. Uh, we've been on this journey through the book of Ephesians. A quick breakdown, just because I know we've got a few uh, new ears in this. Uh, the book of Ephesians works like this. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that has had uh, a history of lots of stuff going on. Um, it's one that he visited several times. He stayed plenty of time in. There were riots during one of his missionary journeys that made him flee out of it because people, uh, essentially the idol makers, uh, weren't getting business anymore, and so it became mobs in the streets. Um, long story short, what Paul's doing in this book is he's doing the same thing that then he's writing to Timothy later uh, in the books to Timothy when Timothy's established as a pastor there to build up eldership, build up leadership. And then later, after all the other apostles had died and gone and John, the apostle, was writing the book of Revelation, he writes to the Ephesians as one of the seven churches about. And that's the fact that there was this never-ending battle in the Ephesian church to gain knowledge as some sort of favor with God, to build ourselves up to being in this favor with God, to do the right things and reject the wrong things, to build up this favor with God. And something they constantly struggle with that Paul is continually arguing in this book, and it goes, again, all the way to Revelation. It's John's main point, is that they'd done the right things, rejected the wrong things, but they lost their love for he who redeemed them. They lost their love for God. 
And so Paul in this book is making this argument. He's making an argument that through Ephesians 1 and 2 up to this point, he's saying, look, you were dead to your sins. Specifically, he's kind of summarizing chapter 2. He says, you're dead to your sins. You had no hope in you. You were children of wrath. You were following the devil. You were following the world. You You were doing everything that your flesh and that your mind wanted you to do, all these lusts that pleased you. And all that does is bring you worthy of wrath. Come judgment day, but God, because he's full of, of kindness, full of mercy, full of grace, full of love, chose to mold his will, chose to mold his plan, chose to mold all of creation that through all of his sovereign interaction within creation, Christ's fulfillment of the law could happen through his death, burial, and resurrection. We have the Holy Spirit. We've been made alive purely through him. He's just finished making this argument. Again, many of us know this. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's been making this argument saying, there is nothing you could do to earn any bit of God's favor. God gave you his favor as a gift because God is good and God is loving. If there's anything you could bring into it with you, any reason that any bit of your salvation hinges on you, you've got this favor that you can boast about, and that does not make you God's workmanship. That makes you a joint effort workmanship between you and God. And that's not what God intended. God intended we be his workmanship, redeemed by him, purchased by him, loved dearly by him, sculpted by him, molded by him, and led by him, because not because we can scramble around and do all sorts of good works to earn his favor, but because he, in his sovereignty, scribed out works that he wants you to walk in. He wants you to be obedient because you are living for him, loving him, following the Holy Spirit in humility and surrender. He wants to use you not have you earn something. And he says, if that wasn't the case, this is where we've been, uh, I'm not going to use my where we've been slides, but this is where we've been the past couple weeks in the sense that, again, what we read today, he's saying, all right, let's get into the mindset of what you're trying to believe. You're trying to believe that it is by some way, shape, or form some of your works because Jewish quote-unquote believers were sweeping in and was common in the first century. Jewish people would follow Paul around. They'd come in afterwards and they'd say, that's great, you've come to Christ. That's wonderful. You have faith. Sure, there's salvation in him, but also salvation that then leads you to doing all this stuff. Follow these laws, follow these rules, get circumcised, do this, do that. And what he's saying, if that was the logic, verses 11 through 13 sits there and says, just know, if that were the logic, your state as a Gentile, being someone that was not given the law and uncircumcised by those who consider themselves circumcised, which is done purely by human hands, you have to be aware that for a time being, we call it the Old Testament, Uh, specifically post-Moses law, for a time being, you did not have step one to start at. You did not have the law. You had no favor with God. You had no hope, it says, and you were without God in the world. If we're really going to buy into this logic that Jesus came to turn us into Jews, just realize that God's plan then was to fulfill his promise, but for a long chunk of history, didn't want to give anyone hope but the Jews. He says, that's not what God did. And that's where we picked up last week, for he himself is our peace, 
who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. The fact that for a long period of time, there really was a chosen people through which they had the only tools to be somewhat right with God through faith. But that God's plan wasn't that that would reach salvation. God's plan was that that would be fulfilled through Christ so that all could reach salvation. So that separation, Christ has now become that peace. Christ has now made us one. There is no such thing as race. There is no such thing as creed. I shouldn't say, I should be careful when I say creed. There is such thing as creed in the sense that we believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. But there's no such thing as, as what your upbringing was, male or female, what your nationality was, what you fled from in your sin. There's full access to God through Jesus. He's made the church one. He is our peace, and he broke down the middle wall of separation. And now we pick up in verses 15 and 16, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. We've seen Christ serve as the new mediator between Jew and Gentile uh, over the past couple of weeks within this context of understanding well, what exactly does the wall do, why was the law enacted. We've been going over to Galatians some, where Gal- in the book of Galatians, again, same argument that he's making to the Ephesians here. He's arguing to them, well, why was the law given? The law was given because we're sinners, because we cannot achieve uh, righteousness with God. And so we had to put something in place by which we could interact with him long enough for Jesus to come. And so we've seen that now, where once the law was the mediator, prior to that they had Moses. Well, once Moses died, the people in the wilderness, rightfully proclaimed, if it's just us and God, we will die because of his holiness. And so God gave the law to serve as a mediator, a middleman. Now we have Jesus as our mediator, our middleman. What he's been arguing for the Ephesians church is they don't need to believe the lies that come with the works of the law being necessary for salvation. Again, this Jewish thought. Paul himself, if you read the book of Acts, Paul himself, though he made himself all uh, to all people, though he would go into the Ephesians church and live as an Ephesian uh, uh, the, to be able to reach those people, he still his entire life obeyed Jewishness. But it wasn't because that was how he achieved righteousness. That was how he, as a Jew, could, could lovingly and in a holy manner proclaim to God worship. Christ didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled the law. What he's arguing to them is, look, it's one thing, for instance, for a Jew like myself to continue practicing Jewish eating habits or continue practicing circumcision with my family or to continue practicing all the holidays and celebrations and feasts. He says, it's one thing entirely for me to continue doing that now as an act of celebration and worship of a holy God, seeking to do it for his glory. It's nothing entirely for me to bring that into the church and preach something that is not Christ, to preach Jesus plus, as we oftentimes refer to the Catholic Church. It's white people's version of Jesus plus. The mindset has done nothing but establish a fracture between those with God's presence through the law and those without Paul's arguing, he's saying, look, for all these years, 4,000-ish plus years of Old Testament, he says, there has been, God has been in this 
this perfectly sculpted, perfectly intricately involved plan to super glue that which was once shattered all over the ground because in the beginning, Adam and Eve chose to rebel. And we've just been fractured since. He told us Christ serves as our peace within the church. He serves as our oneness, and he serves to break down our separation. Now he goes further, declaring Jesus abolished in his flesh the enmity between Jew and Gentile. It's not enough that there was a separation between Gentiles and the Jewish people. There's an enmity. It's a deep-rooted hatred between us and the chosen people of God. I'm sure it's not something difficult for us to grasp. Again, you'll never hear me get up here and tell you anything political, but I am going to get up here and tell you something biblical. You cannot open your eyes outside of a church building. You, can open, you cannot open your eyes inside most church buildings without seeing enmity between people. Turn on your news. Don't even turn on your news. Log into Facebook. I can promise you one of the best things you could do right now is probably to just disable Facebook. I can promise you, you could be gone for two months and get back on and people are still going to claim that white people hate black people and black people hate white people and people are still going to proclaim that Republicans hate Democrats and Democrats hate Republicans and uh, that those that won't wear a mask during COVID are just wanting to kill everybody and those that are wearing a mask during COVID are buying into the government lies. It's going to be there. Enmity is there. It is. What Paul is saying is he's saying Jesus didn't come to give you the right side to stand on in regards to enmity. He came to abolish it, and not just abolish it, but to take it on in his flesh, to kill it by killing himself. How far the Son of God went to crush that, which all we want to do is crush each other with. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Again, um, I read in the NLT, it's easy to listen to. Uh, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. I'm sure we would all agree with that. That's just logic. A lot of Romans is just logic. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Enmity. It's that same word. If we live with a fleshly mindset, if we live according to what our carnal desire, with what your first instinct emotion, say something happens and your spur-of-the-moment emotion that is not filtered through your theology, I always say everything you've been given, every gift you've been given, every personality trait you've been given, the unique, special way you've been created, it's wonderful, it glorifies God, but it has to be filtered through your theology. Do not respond to anything without first letting it filter through your theology. First, I have a natural tendency to want to say, I forgive you, I forgive you, you did nothing wrong. That's not true. I have to filter that through my theology. That sends people to hell, thinking Jesus loves them. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will obey God's laws. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. You want to please God, let any instinct you have, let any 
thing you do, say, whatever. Every moment has to be a pause, filter through my theology, filter through a love and a prayer and an adherence and a listening to God in his presence, letting the Holy Spirit change and mold your heart to look like Jesus. That pleases God. Otherwise, we just can't help but jump on the bandwagon on one side or the other of the enmity where we hate one another because all it does is hate God. It's true for creation that we've been living in a state of hostility with God. Our sinful nature leads us to death and separation from God, and this spreads into our relationship with those around us. The only way for us to live in true peace with those around us is to first have peace with God, being able to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I think it's beautiful right now. I know I tend to be overly plugged into what's going on culturally at the moment in my sermons. But I think it's beautiful right now. You listen to anyone on the news, and what they're trying to proclaim is that the other side doesn't want peace, the other side doesn't want justice, the other, and I'm not even favoring one side or the other. I'm saying either side you listen to, the other one doesn't want peace, the other one doesn't want justice, the other one doesn't want righteousness, the other one doesn't want love, the other one doesn't want grace. I'll be honest with you, neither side does. Because if they did, they would start with God. How on earth would I expect to be peaceful with anyone if I can't be peaceful with the creator that made them? It was a conversation yesterday with my grandfather talking about the beauty of a Christian influence in a, in a court situation where someone goes into a home at night and murders a family except for one of them and that one Christian member is able to stand there in court and say, certainly, that person needs to be rehabilitated, that person needs to serve a punishment, whatever, but that person can sit there and say, I forgive you because Jesus offers you forgiveness. Why, if I can't grasp that God doesn't want to condemn someone to hell, that he'd rather have them repent and turn, I can't grasp that until I first understand the same thing went with me. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. When you follow your desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility. Again, that same word for enmity. Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Christian's able to look at these things and say, yes, sexual immorality, that's an act between two people, um, but it's not just between two people, it's also between those people and God. Idol or impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery. We, we have this tendency as mankind to compartmentalize ourselves into these different areas where, well, what's the effectiveness of this on so-and-so? What's the effectiveness of this on so-and-so? And Well, as long as it's not hurting anybody, no, that is not the question. Where does it stand in the eyes of God? David, after all that terrible stuff he did with Bathsheba, having her husband killed. He falls before God and he says, I've sinned before God and God alone. He sinned against a lot of people, but that, correcting those wrongs wasn't going to do any good if he wasn't correcting himself before God. This hostility or enmity we have with God and others is a byproduct of living in the flesh. It's a byproduct of verses 
of verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, where he sits there and he says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. That is what leads to this hostility. It's a serious problem the world has, not just something that serves as an inconvenience or some sort of shame. It's not a shame that the country's falling apart and people hate each other. That's not a shame. It's not a shame that churches are getting up every Sunday and preaching everything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a shame. It will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's bigger than a shame. James 4, 4, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. That enemy is the same word for enmity. Friendship with the world makes you the same hostility with God that humanity condemns each other with because of this side or that side. The church, uh, for the church to continue living this kind of lifestyle makes us adulterers before God. Again, James, this right here was written to the church. This wasn't written to unbelievers. Yeah, it's applicable to unbelievers. This could win someone to salvation, absolutely. But this is written to the church. James was looking at Christians when he said, you're adulterers right now. An unbeliever can't be an adulterer because he's not the bride of Christ. Being a friend of the world, being in line with the world, letting our priorities. It's, one th- it's certainly one thing for you to vote Christian values. I'm in full support of that. It's important to do so. But to allow like a political preference or a philosophical mindset or a whatever you've built up in your head as important, to let that surpass the leadership of God and wanting to preach his gospel and his love first and foremost... It's an adultery. It's cheating. Cheating on the perfect bridegroom who's preparing a place so that he can come and bring you to be with him. Sleeping around while he's gone. And he's with you the whole time. We are to separate ourselves from the hostility that comes with the nature of the world. We walk in the spirit of God. It's present among us as carnal people, unable to live in harmony in the peace of God. And Paul taught that it's through Christ that mankind has peace because he serves as our peace, fulfilling the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. We've moved away from a time where ritual and ceremony shows our faith. Now we've been made new. Um, I know that's a tricky sounding word, but what MacArthur words it beautifully where he says, okay, What he's saying there is he's saying this. The Jewish law has a live by this for righteousness sake and all Paul teaches of it is that it condemns us because we can't measure up. There's an aspect of that that is holiness. Things like don't be sexually immoral, uh, don't murder, don't steal. You know, the nine out of the ten commandments that are repeated in the New Testament, the one not in there is uh, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. There's a reason why 
Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't get rid of the law. There's aspects of the law that reflect the holiness of God. Absolutely, we should live in that holiness. But what he's saying is he's saying, you're not a slave to every little detail of this for the sake of then standing before God and being guilty anyway. You've been made new. Colossians 1, 19 through 22, for God in all his fullness, God completely invested, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. There is peace. And it has nothing to do with the way you vote. It has nothing to do with your personal preference on this or that. It has nothing to do with the style of worship. It has nothing to do with the way you dress when you come to church. Certainly, have some respect before God, absolutely. But it has nothing to do with the things you do that do this or do that or do that. or that. It has everything to do with one thing and one thing alone, and that is the Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. Again, us Gentiles. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Uh, Us Gentiles, but then also just all of us in general who couldn't obey the law, couldn't fulfill the law. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault." That's almost word for word what Ephesians chapter 1 says, that God fulfilled his pleasure of his will by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, allowing us to be the beloved, holy and blameless before him. Does it ever impact us that we are holy and blameless in the eyes of God? Or do we walk around continuing to shame ourselves, continuing to guilt ourselves into... You can be just a slave to your sin sitting all day fretting about it as you are engaged in it. It's still your idol. No, are we fully engaged in the God who sees us as holy and blameless because he died for you, his blood shed for you? It's God's perfect plan that he fully satisfy in Christ's obedience, taking our place in the punishment for our sins. It leads us to being holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault not without moderate fault, without a single fault. There's nothing, through Jesus and Jesus alone, there's nothing you could do or say that he's going to hold against you in the same way that there's nothing you can do or say that he's going to do in your favor. It's a shame to see Christians build a theology where we are okay with drama and strife within the body over issues that do not pertain to the gospel. I mentioned it last week, there's different tiers Different levels of, of issues that churches have to have unity over. Again, a prime example, I, just the ones I pull out of the air for, for uh, m- examples. Smoking cigarettes. Can Christians smoke cigarettes? Uh, I've built a theology where I don't think it's wise. It's addictive. It can be a waste of money. It's hard to kick the habit, and it can have bad physical issues. But I don't know, differ on me. I don't care. A slightly more priority for me. I'm a young earth creationist. I believe 6,000 years ago, within the course of one week, 24-hour periods, God spoke into existence everything the way that he saw it in the Garden of Eden. I believe that. You can disagree with me. We preach it at this church. It's what I say we believe in this church, but you can be a member here. You can come here and have a different view. Just know, eh, I've worked it through in my head. You've worked it through in your head, whatever. 
as long as it doesn't lead, as long as a position doesn't lead to greater heresy. But then a higher tier level, that was again a couple hundred years after the church. There was a man named Arian who taught that Jesus was a created being, that he was born out of God, that he wasn't eternally existing, and that he was lesser than God. You do not have a right to step into this church and profess that with any authority. I will nix that, and if you don't refuse to repent in that, you're not welcome here. Does that make sense? We work through these things. It's a shame for us to build a theology where we're okay with drama and strife within the body over issues that do not pertain to the gospel. How often do churches split because they don't like the way the pastor dresses? How, much, how often do churches split because they don't like the way music was conducted? How often do churches split because two old ladies were talking about each other behind their backs so therefore their families couldn't get along and then their friends couldn't get along and then a church crumbles? That's a shame. Because what we've chosen to do is we've chosen to say, get this out of here. I write my own law. It's not the gospel. Colossians 2, 11 through 15, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Again, what does Paul say in Ephesians about, about circumcision? It's made with human hands. Jesus did a different circumcision. He performed a spiritual circumcision, cutting away your sinful pleasure. Anyone here that has a son knows what happens during circumcision. If cutting that away makes us holy, that's a shame. Jesus cut away that which really mattered, your sin. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. A lot of Americans, a lot of prosperous nation Christians are going to die and go to hell. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you when they cry, Lord, Lord. Why is that? Because a lot of Christians didn't come to terms with exactly what Jesus did on the cross. And therefore, they weren't willing to be buried with him. Why? We do it with our pictures of heaven. Why do I paint heaven to look the way I want it to look? is if God can't do it better. This week I was walking on Log Walk with Watson and I got that faint smell of the salt air, you know, like almost like the coast. And I sat there and went, I can't wait for the, I can't wait for all this nonsense to be over so that I can make a trip to the coast, smell the salt air, clean my sinuses and be good. And I thought, I would love for this smell to be in heaven. To be perfectly honest with you, God couldn't care less if that smell is in heaven. There's something much better at store. And we really do have to warn ourselves as Christians, as Christians, the image we've painted of what our salvation looks like, the image we've painted of what Jesus looks like, the image we've painted of what the church looks like, the image we've painted of what heaven looks like, the image we've painted of what God looks like. Is that what we want it to look like or is that what God has revealed it looks like? Because if it's what we want it to look like, you, Jesus didn't die for you. you. You believe in some other person. And it's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. That's what leads to, I'm spiritual but not religious. No, you don't love God and you don't love his church. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. 
He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Mankind points to the cross of Jesus as if it was some sort of failure for the church. No, that was God shaming everything that could have any sort of spiritual power over you. Publicly shamed them through his death. What looks like the greatest failure in any sort of spiritual history, in reality was the greatest and only creator God boastfully proclaiming his victory over it. The result of Christ's unifying presence, the conquering of sin and death, and the fulfillment of the law is that we were finally able to live at peace with one another because we live at peace with God. The purpose isn't for us to live in peace. The purpose is for us to live with God. The byproduct is that we live with peace. And what Paul is arguing here is he's saying, you're making the law which kept you at peace and kept you away from God as if it's the thing that's going to bring you peace with God. It's not. He's given you peace. He publicly shamed the so-called spiritual rulers and authorities by willingly allowing our sin, both us with the law and those without the law, to nail, be nailed to the cross with Christ. It's through faith in him that, we are able to, that God was able to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. For a period of time, the separation that was present between Jew and non-Jew was necessary for God to keep peace with humanity and preserve a remnant through which he could send Christ. However, the separation is no longer necessary. Galatians 6, 12 through 16. Those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. Beware any theology about you earning any sort of favor with God. I'm going to stop here today. But I've built up a rule for myself. Until someone's going to stand up and say, you did not, cannot, and will never be able to earn any favor or any grace before God. He freely gave it to you. Repent of your sin and turn to him. I won't listen to anything else they have to say. I mean, I'll listen to them to build some sort of relationship and whatever, but I'm not going to let it sink into my heart. You don't serve in a church to earn favor with God. You serve in a church because you love his body, because he's created you anew, and you see a unity there. You see, a, look around. Make eye contact with somebody that you do. It's not in your family. Everybody, like, look around. Don't just look at the person next to you. Until you're able to look at that person and say, that person and I are the bride of Christ in his eyes. That person and I are the chosen in Christ, that person and I are brothers and sisters, and not only brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters with Christ, adopted, and God is our Father. I love him be- and or her because God loved us. Until we can reach that point, are we broken over our sin? Let's take a moment. All heads bowed, all eyes closed, just as we do every week. If you've never responded to the message of the gospel, it's a tough message. It is not ask Jesus into your heart in a prayer. Certainly you can have, you can word it in a way that a kid wants to, it's not a problem. But what it is, is it's Jesus paid it 
all for you because he loves you and he wants you to have peace. He wants you to have love. He wants you to have grace. He wants you to not sit around and fret and worry. He wants you to admire him because he's worthy of admiration. It's a great God who wants to rescue you. And all you have to do is believe it and admit you need rescuing. Repent and turn to God. And for those of us that are Christians, we've got a wonderful, wonderful community. Here, there's wonderful, wonderful communities all over this county. Countless for me to bring up. But as wonderful as they are, I know I'm growing very weary of seeing us all try to achieve anything without it being the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. For the sake of trying to earn members, earn favor, earn Christian converts, earn, win all this stuff, all we've done is allowed our churches to turn into which theme park do you want to go to? And that's a shame. Because all we've been doing is professing that going somewhere where the Bible is preached and where God is celebrated and worshipped and where we grow in our admiration of Him isn't enough. I preach to myself every Sunday. Believe me, I'm going to be repenting of stuff. But I want to take a moment Realign yourself with God. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness that you've placed over us, that you've made us holy and blameless in your sight, that you've restored us to you, that you put to shame any spiritual ruler or authority that could have any sort of convicting information on us or any sort of condemning power over us. You publicly shamed it through what you did on the cross. And as your church... We want to pursue one thing and one thing alone, and that is your glory and your coming kingdom through our love for one another, but most importantly, our love for you, which empowers us to love others. May we be bold in our witness, not just living sacrificially and living humbly and living in a way that helps others, but by speaking with our mouths the glory of your gospel. Holy Spirit, put unrest in our hearts if we are not in line with you. And discipline us to bring us back into unity with you.
We love you and we praise you. If you would, uh, all heads bowed, all eyes closed, stand back up. I'm, uh, if you would, stand up. We're going to do something that um, we got a little bit out of practice of doing with COVID being gone. But um, just as a training for us to be able to pray through Scripture, I'm just going to hit a few points in what we covered today in this passage. Things that God's teaching us here that we should be inspired to then pray to Him uh, through. So just repeat after me. I'll, I'll give you li- just little words. Again, this is just a tool, but... Christ, we thank you for being our peace. We thank you for breaking down the wall of separation. We thank you for fulfilling the law and declaring us righteous. We thank you for bringing us unity. That nothing can separate us if we're unified in you. We thank you for the cross and putting our sin to death. We worship you and praise you. Jesus, our Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Let's go be Jesus this week.